Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Microbe Moment Morning Edition. That show that takes you down the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. We're your hosts, John. And I'm Tess. And it's time for our summer edition of Da Bomb, the best of microbiology news. Today, we'll discuss five articles in five distinct categories of microbiology. These include topics on extremophiles, food and agriculture, environmental and marine microbiology, medical microbiology, and microbial products. And just like last time, Da Bomb is made possible by a collaboration with our friends over at Microbytes, who are breaking down the microbiology world one bite at a time. They publish articles twice a month, now on the latest microbiology news, so you can see how we became friends so quickly. And they do so in not one, but in four different languages. So whether your native language is English, Dutch, French, Spanish, or Russian, Microbytes has bite-sized microbiology news articles just for you. All right, John, so I don't think we have any other business. Are we ready to begin? We sure are. So where are you bringing us first, John, to outer space or to some remote location of the Earth, perhaps? I'm kind of bringing you back both in time and to Lake Huron. That's one of those Great Lakes, right? That's not very remote at all. No, but you'll understand more when I talk about it. Okay, bring us our first article on extremophiles and space crows. Man, I'm singing a lot today. (laughs) Must be the morning. I like to sing in the morning. So this comes from the article, Possible Link Between Earth's Rotation Rate and Oxygenation, from Clatton Colleagues in Nature Geosciences. So it's believed that extremophiles like cyanobacteria were responsible for converting the Earth's atmosphere to be filled with oxygen, a process that took around 2 billion years called the Great Oxygenation Event. Thanks, microbes. We love our oxygen. Cyanobacteria uses light energy and conducts photosynthesis to create organic compounds with oxygen as a byproduct. These microbes did not do it themselves, however. The length of day may have been a big factor. So Earth's rotation is one full cycle, which is 24 hours. But it was much faster when the Earth was younger. It may have been as short as 6 hours. It's thought that slowing the Earth's rotation is due to tidal friction or the friction that is caused by the tug of the moon's gravity on Earth. The scientific team in this study looked at cyanobacteria at the bottom of Lake Huron sinkhole, where water is low in oxygen, high in sulfur, and the environment and microbes were good representations of the conditions on Earth at the time. The team found that day lengths affected the amount of oxygen being produced. The longer the day, the more oxygen produced, and the reverse is true for a shorter day length. The cyanobacteria in the lake were also in kind of a dance with sulfur-oxidizing bacteria. In the morning and in the evening, the sulfur bacteria covered cyanobacteria and prevented photosynthesis from them. But when the light gets too intense, the sulfur bacteria will go deeper into the sinkhole, allowing the cyanobacteria to conduct photosynthesis. In shorter days, the sulfur-producing bacteria had a greater effect in limiting the cyanobacteria's ability to photosynthesize. The scientists were also able to model this and show that day length shapes oxygen release from the bacteria mats. 
it may be due to how fast the Earth was spinning was the reason why we even exist today. Wait, 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 wait. So are you saying that the Earth's days used to be only six hours long? Yeah, a whole day was just six hours. So was there only three hours of daylight? Like, how did that work? I would say yes, because, you know, you look at Earth, it's like half light, half dark. So then how did that create more oxygen? Because the days are shorter, but the light-dark cycle is the same percentage. No, it's the extending of the day that allowed for oxygen to be produced. Because back then, cyanobacteria may have existed, but the Earth was spinning so fast that it didn't give them enough time to create oxygen during photosynthesis. As the Earth slowed because of the moon tugging on it, that allowed for a longer day, and thus cyanobacteria were able to create oxygen. Oh, so it was the lengthening of the days that created oxygen, not the shortened days. Right, exactly. Oh, okay, that's pretty interesting. How Do you know how deep the, the sinkhole is here? That I don't know. I know they were talking about like 80 meters in the paper, but I think that was like while it was in the sinkhole, how deep it was in Lake Huron, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. All right, ready for article number two? Let's get into food and agriculture microbiology. Okay, so this is our first article that comes to us from the ladies over at Microbytes. So this is how fermented food fighting for us, part one. So this article is actually a little bit of a mini review. The blog post actually incorporates facts from 13 different articles. So if you'd like to review any of the articles found in this little segment, you can head over to the Microbytes site, which we will have a link in our show notes. So this is all about fermented foods, if you couldn't guess from the title. We talk about fermented foods a lot on our podcast and on our blog because they're amazing and they show some of the symbiotic interactions between microbes and ourselves. So fermented foods are created when raw food products are introduced to a culture of microorganisms. These come in a variety of different foods that we eat every day. Think of yogurt or kimchi or even sauerkraut. So most cultures of these bacteria or most cultures that create this fermented food are what we call lactic acid bacteria, as in bacteria that create lactic acid. It's a very clever name. Many of these microbes may sound familiar to you if you ever looked at the strains in your yogurt or read the label of a probiotic. These include microbes like lactobacilli, lactococci, enterococci, streptococci, and so many cocci. John, can you enlighten us? Why are there so many cocci? What does it mean? Are all these microbes the same? I don't know why there's so many, but cocci is a spherical shape when you describe what a bacteria looks like. Right, exactly. Cocci here just has to do with the shape of the microbes. They're all spherical in some way. So we have good microbes, but there might also be bad microbes mixed in these fermented, fermented cultures. Great attention to the sterility of the process is important as the cultures themselves may not always be safe and can be infected with bacteriophages, which again can sometimes be good or unharmful to humans, but not always. I feel like bacteriophages are starting to be our new cholera call out. Like we used to have every single episode we talked about cholera, but now it seems like bacteriophages are creeping in. They seem to come up in every episode these days. 
Bacteriophages are viruses that specifically infect bacteria. They can hijack the cellular machinery and energy of a bacteria cell to replicate themselves. Bacteriophages are frequent culprits of fermentation failure, leading to losses of batches, which I don't think I've ever really thought of. Like I never, like I thought of you could contaminate your fermentation with other microbes and, and molds in particular, other fungus, but I never really thought of bacteriophages actually going in and destroying your fermented or your, your cultures that cause the fermentation. Uh, that's just one more thing to worry about with your homebrew, huh, John? There's always another thing to worry about homebrew. Actually, I think, don't quote me 100%, but I think the Cas9 system for CRISPR was found because there's phages infecting uh, culture, was there not? So a little update, everyone. I was a little wrong about what I said there about the CRISPR. So what happened was several labs have been finding this DNA in bacteria, and they ended up hypothesizing that it was some sort of immune response to phages. But it was the use of yogurt culturing bacteria to demonstrate that bacteria have an adaptive immunity to viruses. So I was a little off, but still pretty interesting. Now back to the episode. Um, I know at work, with all the fermentation of bacteria, phage is a worry and we do need to actually make sure that there is no viruses in our cell banks so how do you do that how do you make sure there's no phage well to make our cell banks you need to isolate a single colony which is the best way to prevent viruses but still that isn't enough and i think they have to test molecularly to see if there are any viral dna or rna interesting but i mean those kinds of techniques are not homebrew friendly at all <laughs> not many people can test molecularly have you read anything in any of your homebrewing research about protecting your brews from phage unfortunately no they just focus on bacteria or other molds yeah i thought that was a pretty interesting thing like i never really thought about it but it makes perfect sense that um you not only have to protect your fermented foods in your home brews from bacteria and molds that might contaminate but also from bacteriophage that might kill the bacteria that are actually performing the fermentation. So these lactic acid bacteria, bacteriophages, wow, that's a mouthful, typically belong to the cardioviralis order of viruses. Not only do some bacteriophages inflict damage in the fermentation process, but others utilize lactic acid bacteria cultures as a Trojan horse. This is important as viruses do not survive well outside of a host. But hepatitis A and E and norovirus and rotavirus sneakily attack via fermented foods or other fecal-contaminated foods. But don't worry about COVID-19 using fermented foods as a vehicle, as not all viruses are built the same way. Luckily, in the case of COVID-19, and like most respiratory viruses, the lipid bilayer on the outside of the virus is easily disrupted by salt, low acidity, and various temperatures, which all occur during fermentation. But bacteriophages are not bad. You have to view it as a whole community, as a system of checks and balances. So let's get into some of the potential benefits bacteriophages might provide to our fermented foods. First, bacteriophages bring some important benefits by preventing lactic acid bacteria from overproducing metabolites that can be toxic in high concentrations. So they sort of 
can regulate the population, allowing them not to get out of control. Not only do bacteriophages positively impact the culture of fermented foods themselves, they can influence the host's microbiome as well. First, they might protect the host from pathogenic microbes by infecting and destroying a potential pathogen. Second, bacteriophages infect healthy microbes and they can change the functionality, signaling to other microbes in the area that there is an infection. This can also help to promote horizontal gene transfer, which is sort of an exchange of genetic material between different bacterial species. And this can contribute to the robustness and diversity of the host microbiome. So it can change the behaviors of the microbes that are already inside your gut. Another benefit is that the interaction between bacteriophage and the host immune system can trigger an immune response, which again might be good or bad. Not all immune responses are good. Think of autoimmune diseases. In addition to benevolent bacteriophages, there are other benefits of fermented food. Many lactic acid bacteria used in the food fermentation process are classified as probiotics. Probiotic bacteria aid with the digestion of compounds that the host wouldn't typically be able to digest. In order for lactic acid bacteria to be considered probiotics, they must survive and function correctly to interact with the host in a meaningful manner in the intestines. Many probiotic products exist out there, but few actually act as a cure-all for any digestive discomfort and for diseases. And many of them do not survive the uh, harsh environments that we have in our stomachs. However, incorporating a probiotic rich foods like fermented foods have been shown to have a beneficial effect in one's overall health because the bioactive compounds that they produce. Not to mention that there's also a lot of nutrients in probiotic foods and many of them are pretty low in uh, calories as well. So bioactive compounds and metabolites that are present in fermented foods also have a positive impact on the host system. An example is short-chain fatty acids, which are produced by our lactic acid bacteria. So butyrate is a famous short-chain fatty acid in the microbiome field as it prevents pathogen growth. It regulates the intestinal motility and acts as an anti-inflammatory agent in the host gastrointestinal tract when ingested or produced. Others are absorbed and used in other parts of the body and can help with increasing energy efficiency, regulating cholesterol, and improve functionality of many different organs. So these things can be very helpful. In conclusion, not only do fermented foods add a delicious dimension to your food, but their multifaceted ability to improve overall health should convince you to incorporate it in your diet. So what do you think, John? Have I convinced you to eat some yogurt today? I have to say no, but that's only because I eat so much yogurt anyways. So you're still going to eat yogurt today? Probably twice. So I'm going to say I convinced you to eat yogurt. Okay. <laughs> All right, moving on to our article number three on environmental and marine microbiology. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. 
Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. So this comes from the contributors uh, Paul Strother and Clinton Foster. And the article is Discovered, Fossilized Spores Suggestive of Early Land Plants. So there has been a gap in the understanding of when plants adapted to living on land and how that may have happened. A variety of fossilized plant spores have been found in rocks from Western Australia that date from the early Ordovician era, approximately 480 million years ago. These rock samples have been drilled from the Canning Basin in Western Australia and prepared as slides all the way back in 1958 as part of Australia's search for oil. Wow, that's a long time ago. That's older than me, older than you, older than my mom. Yeah, so the reason they, they were looking for fossils while drilling because, you know, dead things eventually make oil. So if you're seeing fossils, it's possible that you're going to find some oil. And these scientists were just sifting through these old slides in hopes of finding something. Ah, so just like uh, Florian Chain sifting through old papers to find penicillin. Exactly. Always circling back to Alexander Fleming. Oh, man, I'm obsessed at this point. But back to non-Alexander Fleming stuff, some of the spores may have belonged to early forms of land-dwelling algae, from which other land plants are thought to have originated. You see, macro fossils of the oldest known plants are 425 million years old, and there's these molecular clock estimates that they use, which are partially based on genetic mutation rates that theorize that the first land plants came about 505 million years ago. It's possible we have not found fossil evidence of these plants because their structures may have been too soft, so they weren't fossilized. If you think of like sharks, the only thing you see are their teeth because that's the hardest thing on a shark. It's a lot of like cartilage and flesh. Kind of like the same thing. Spores, on the other hand, have a tough cell wall and they're more easily able to be fossilized. So they can be used as a proxy for plants. In fact, it has been long hypothesized that spores were one of the earliest plant adaptations on life on land, says Strother. Just as the egg preceded the chicken, evolutionary speaking, so spores preceded sporophytes, the spore-producing plant structures that can take the form of, say, fruiting bodies of moss, fronds of ferns, trees, and so on. The finding not only pushes back the fossil record of land plants another 20 million years, they also add weight to the idea that spore-like fossils belong to land-based algae. Quoted, it's supporting the idea that there were some land-dwelling algae and early land plants that lived together. So what'd you think of that? Aw, they formed a little community together. 
All right, bringing us to our next article on pathogen profiles and medical microbiology. So this one, actually, I was reading it. It's very similar to another article that we did last time in our DeBalm in, what was that, back in June, I believe. But this one is a little bit different. So this is another article that is brought to us by Microbytes. It's called A Simple Switch from Friend to Foe. So only a small portion of the microorganisms in our environment are pathogens. A very, 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 very small portion. The others can even be beneficial to the host, but most don't interact with us at all. The opportunistic pathogen is a concept where a harmless friend can become an infectious foe. So opportunistic pathogens usually are a huge issue for people who are already immunocompromised as they can trigger the immune system um, and form and become pathogens, become pathogenic. So what is kind of the switch from harmless friends to infectious foe? We wanted to know, and so we looked at a case of Staphylococcus epidermidis. So Staphylococcus epidermidis is a skin opportunistic bacteria that can switch and cause infectious diseases like sepsis in hospitals and resist antibiotics. But everybody in practically the entire world, I'd probably say, has Staphylococcus epidermidis on them right now. The bacterial species has a complex sugar molecule called wall-tyacoic acid, or WTA, that is present in the bacterial cell wall and plays a role in their shape and interaction with their hosts. While non-pathogenic Staphylococcus epidermidis possesses only GROP WTA, so that is our wall-tyacoic acid again, this version of the complex sugar is linked to the ability of the bacterium to trade genes with pathogen bacteria such as Staphylococcus aureus and then become pathogenic. So could we produce a staphylococcal vaccine that targets the RBOP WTA without disturbing our normal microflora? That is still to come. And then our final article is on biotech and microbial products. And I am very, very excited to share this one with you because it has to do with some of my favorite things. Let me guess, plants and microbes? Not only plants and microbes, but also alternative proteins and optimizing land efficiency using microbes to better feed the growing planet. Okay, so let's get into some quick facts on agriculture as it is today. Right now, about half of the arable land in the world is already devoted to agriculture. And 690 million people went hungry in 2019, according to the State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report. When you add this to the growing population, which is now expected to exceed 10 billion people by 2050, which is less than 30 years away, we are setting ourselves up for an extreme food crisis within the next three decades. Here are some more stats for you, because you know I love stats, if you're not convinced yet that we are in a food crisis. To sustain the anticipated 2050 global population, agriculture must increase its output by 60% over the course of the next 30 years. But here's the real kicker. Do you know how much agriculture has increased in the last 20 years between 1985 to 2005? I would expect it to be a lot just due to advances in technology. What is the number? 
Yeah, you would think it would be a lot because a lot has changed from 1985 to 2005. But no, it only increased 28%. And again, we have to increase 60% in the next 30 years. So clearly the status quo is too slow to grow our food. See what I did there? It's kind of kind of clever. So what's the solution? Well, we likely need several creative and innovative ideas to combat this food crisis. So I bring to you this paper by Aaron Barr Evan and his colleagues entitled The Photovoltaic Driven Microbial Protein Production Can Use Land and Sunlight More Efficiently Than Conventional Crops, a.k.a. microbes are better than plants. I know it might be a hot take, but... You know, that's where I come from. So Aaron Barr Evan and his team evaluated one solution called photovoltaic driven single cell protein, which is produced by microbial biomass. They created a model that compared conventional crop systems to the photovoltaic driven single celled protein systems. Specifically, they analyze photovoltaic electricity generation, direct air capture of carbon dioxide, electrosynthesis of the electron donor and or carbon source for microbial growth, hydrogen or methanol, and the microbial cultivation, and the overall process of biomass in the proteins. So what that all means is they looked at a number of ways to measure how efficient this microbial protein was compared to conventional means. Okay, so I'm going to break this down on how it works. Again, this is a very complicated system, so I'll do my best to sort of break it down for everybody. But I think once we get to the stats, it all sort of comes together of how potentially groundbreaking this new method could be. Okay, so how this works. They break it down into four steps. In step one, you have solar panels. They're used to capture solar energy, which is converted to electricity. Electrical energy is then converted to chemical energy, which can be stored in a molecule such as hydrogen, formate, or methanol. So water is also necessary at this step, as is carbon dioxide from the air. So this is a carbon sequestration process as well. Next, you have to feed the microbes. So this chemical energy then becomes part of the overall biomass in our bioreactor. So CO2 from the air also serves as the primary carbon source for the microbes to consume. So now we are using sunlight and the energy from the sunlight plus carbon dioxide from the air and a little bit of water to feed our microbes, which are then converting into proteins and increasing their own biomass. So finally, what we have to do is we don't have just proteins, right? We have a whole bunch of other junk, which include carbs and DNA and other nucleic acid and fatty acids, all this stuff we want to filter out to get to a dry biomass. And so this dry biomass can either be used as feed for livestock or it can be further processed into dry protein in the use of food for human consumption. So I think that's pretty cool that we're able to kind of create food from sunlight and microbes and what's kind of interesting is this is sort of similar to right we have sunlight we have water we have carbon dioxide that's all the same things that we have in agriculture and when we grow our plants for food and this is where it gets very mind-blowing are you ready for this john let's go into it so they did a little analysis, a little comparison, 
and looked at per unit of land between microbial biomass and conventional crop growth. And what they found was that the microbial biomass method could produce 10 times the amount of protein and two times the caloric density compared to staple crops like soybean. Holy crap, that's a huge difference. Yeah, so here's uh, breaking it down a little bit more for my data nerds out there. So what they did is they looked at one hectare of land. So for, for our conventional crops with one hectare of land, they chose soybean, which is the staple crop with the highest protein yield. So they're comparing kind of the gold standard, the highest crop that they could think of against this microbial biomass. And they found that with soybean and one hectare, one hectare of land, you could produce 1.1 tons of protein per year which authors estimate could feed 40 people on a daily protein consumption of 80 grams of protein. So if you take that same piece of land and now optimize it for this photovoltaic-driven single-cell protein system, you can now produce 15 tons of protein using the same amount of land. This feeds approximately 520 people. Again, when we were doing soybean, we were only feeding 40 people. Now we're using this microbial protein, we can feed 520 people. So this is over 10 times more than the soybean treatment. Meaning this is a very real, very creative, and a very microbial solution to the global food insecurity issue. But like any new technology, there are a lot of challenges that might come from implementing this method in real life. One, of course, would be consumer acceptance, as it is a big one in the food market ring. And the other would be competitive pricing. Right now, it would be a big challenge to kind of set up any sort of land into this system, uh, and it would be a big price up front. So... Uh, I, and I also just wanted to read the ending of this paper because I thought it was really funny because the whole paper was all about how we can optimize land use on Earth and how we can help feed the growing population using these microbial proteins. And then at the end, they go, furthermore, the high resource efficiency that characterizes the SCP production in terms of energy, land, water, and nutrient use also make it a prime candidate to support food production in future long-term missions in space and permanent settlements in, extra in extraterrestrial bodies. I just love it. Like, here's all this stuff on Earth, and then let's just go to space because, you know, why not? Who doesn't want to go to space? I mean, that's a great way to get people to accept food from microbes if you think about it it's like oh nasa's gonna use it hell yeah yeah so i just love that kind of ending where they're just like let's go to space let's do it well microbial nation that is the end of our show we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you continue listening we're curious of what was your favorite story i'm a little torn like i thought the fact for me was learning that we only had a six-hour day on Earth originally, but this whole protein production from microbes, I think that might be the one of the episode. What do you think? Yeah, I would probably agree with you. I think the six-hour day was a little mind-blowing, but nothing compared to proteins from microbes. I mean, that's also my field of study, so I am slightly biased. So what do you think, Microbial Nation? Which was your favorite? You can let us know by sending us a 
email at microbigales at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, please consider sharing it with a friend, family member, or somebody else who is microbe deprived right now. You can also go to our website, microbigales.com, to read some of our latest blogs. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at microbigales. Until next time, Microbial Nation, feed your brain, feed your guts, make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.